Morning Sermon Audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, the Great Paradigm Shift. I'm sure you've heard the term, paradigm shift. It was the American physicist and philosopher Thomas Kuhn who used that phrase to describe the philosophy of a change in a mental model. In other words, to think in a different way, to see things in a different way, to have a new frame of reference. And Thomas Kuhn would say that it is a scientific revolution as, and I quote, when scientists encounter anomalies that cannot be explained by the universally accepted paradigm within which scientific progress has hereto been made. In other words, when you first considered, or many years ago, everyone thought that the earth was flat. And then by looking at the horizon, looking at the stars, I don't know how else, by maybe sailing west and still sailing west, they discovered the earth is not flat. And so a paradigm shift had to happen to see the world in a different way. Um, or for example, when they discovered that the solar system doesn't revolve around the earth, but in fact the earth revolves around the sun. It took a while for us to discover that. And then there was this paradigm shift. Well, Jesus' teaching often required the teachers of his day to completely rearrange their thinking as they had also taken God's laws and developed some man-made practices that were no longer true to God's laws and intentions. And so as Jesus taught, many times he had to help them think completely differently than they had thought before. He used a metaphor of new wine needing new wineskins. Because if you put new wine into old wineskins, the old wineskins would stretch beyond their capacity and then they would burst. So new thinking requires new wineskins. Well, have you ever had to completely rearrange your thinking? You know, sometimes our Christian traditions reach a point where the elements of our original celebration are forgotten. And then all of the things we do today in modern culture now defines this tradition. And then we forget about why we celebrate what we celebrate. Christmas, the way it's celebrated modern, in the modern times, is an example of that. We oftentimes forget what Christmas is really all about. Sometimes our understanding of what is truly Christian, or what is Christian, I should say, not truly Christian, is more of a cultural value rather than a Christian one. For example, how to dress for worship. The expectation that the pastor should wear a tie and a suit, for some at least. It was interesting that in central Java, where there's a seminary, where in order for you to graduate, you have to have planted a church nearby. And each of those students that were going to that seminary would then have to travel a little bit further out of the town in order to plant a new church. That was a requirement to graduate. And we visited one of these village churches, and it was easy to tell who the church planter was, because he wore a tie, a Western tie in central Java, in Indonesia. If you're going to be a church planter, then you have to wear a tie. That's more of a cultural thing rather than a Christian thing, and yet somehow we get to these points where we sometimes think of Christianity in a certain box and the laws of God in a certain box. Well, we'll see today that Jesus has to rearrange the thinking of the Jews regarding the issue of purity and of defilement because the Pharisees and scribes had defined what was holy and what wasn't. But Jesus' practices and what he taught 
often conflicted with their definitions. Before we begin, we first have to understand this. What, is, what does it mean to be holy? Well, holiness means to be set apart for God. And when you consider the Old Testament and all of its laws, a lot of it has to do with what's holy and what is common. The things that are set apart are things like holy articles used for only the practice of worship and atonement and the sacrifices. And there was even a holy anointing oil recipe that was only allowed to be used for anointing priests. Anyone else who used the same recipe was, uh, was even worthy of the death penalty. But God's people were a holy people, therefore they had to refrain from certain sinful practices. Well, what is then defilement? Well, defilement then is taking that which is holy and then making it common. So something that really belongs to God and is set apart to be different and then to use it as common use for everyone is defilement. And as we're going to see today, the Pharisees and scribes needed a new kind or needed a paradigm shift to understand and have a new understanding of what it means to defile a person. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. We see this encounter between the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or the scribes. Matthew chapter 15, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Okay, let's stop here. This is the charge that they're leveling against Jesus and his disciples. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? See, there was this ceremonial washing of hands. We know today, of course, that washing your hands before you eat is hygienic. It's good and it's healthy. We should wash our hands before we eat. But there was a ceremonial way of washing hands that was traditional, that was done before you would eat. And there were even specifications of how to wash your hands for this, the purity of the water that was to be used. And they accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the traditions of the elders. Notice that Jesus, as we look at this, Jesus will not deny that his disciples didn't practice that same tradition. He will not explain the behavior of his disciples away. He, would res he will respond by essentially leveling a similar charge against them, but not that they were breaking the traditions of the elders, but that they are breaking the commandments of God. And the thing is, I think sometimes we make similar accusations in the Christian community, like the Pharisees and scribes, where we observe other Christians doing something that we think, in our own understanding of what it means to be Christian, that what they're doing is unchristian. For example, like drinking alcohol, or smoking, or, God forbid, dancing, or playing cards, or going to the movies. See, we, we giggle a little bit, but it is true. In some Christian communities, those things are forbidden. And we accuse those Christians of being disobedient to God, even though it's our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And like the Pharisees, sometimes we take something that is a commandment of God, but then we go about setting where we should draw those lines in obeying them. For example, there is a specific commandment in Scripture, do not get drunk with wine. So drunkenness is forbidden as a commandment of God. But then it suddenly becomes, well, don't take any alcohol at all since it can lead to drunkenness. And then we draw those lines there. Or, for example, greed being a sin. Yes, it is sinful, and it is wrong to desire to get rich quickly without working. And since gambling is a way to get rich without working and to achieve that, uh, that goal, then sometimes people will use cards 
or dice or other things in gambling, so therefore we shouldn't touch those things at all, is how the argument goes. And for example, Paul commands women to dress modestly. That is a commandment of the scriptures, but then there are certain Christian sects who will then define what style of clothing and how much should be covered in order for you to then define this is Christian and this is not. But if we draw our lines where the Bible doesn't draw lines, and then what will happen is we'll start to look at other Christians and then accuse them of going against God's laws um, instead of understanding that they are simply coming from a different culture. And like the Pharisees, then, we're in danger of missing God's activity because we've misplaced our focus on external practices. Imagine the Pharisees and the scribes were in the presence of the Messiah that they had long awaited for, but they couldn't see him. They couldn't understand that this was he because he was just doing things differently than their expectations. He didn't fit their definition of a righteous Israelite. And Christian sects today, S-E-C-T-X, Christian sects today, similarly see their own sect as the only true Christians. And so they'll miss the fact that God is actively involved in the world through others, and they are also faithful and enjoying certain freedoms they have in Christ. So it's easy to mistakenly judge a Christian's spiritual maturity by focusing on his external practices. What if we made up some standards for Christian maturity? What if we said, anyone who's balding has got to be spiritually immature? Okay, then all of a sudden, us men who are losing our hair, we'd have to make sure we get plugs or something, or be wearing it, you know, something to make sure that it isn't obvious that I'm, I'm spiritually immature, right? Or what if we said, any men with facial hair have an addiction? (laughs) boy, now it's time to shave, isn't it, right? Because now we're going to judge people, oh, you must have an addiction because you have facial hair. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? It sounds far-fetched, but it's not that far-fetched from what some of the other ways that we judge people are. For example, men with long hair, right? In some Christian communities, they say, when men with long hair, that's not allowed. Or women wearing jewelry, It must be a sign of their spiritual immaturity then. (laughs) Well, it sounds far-fetched, but it is actually what people do. And the Pharisees were saying, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Well, let's look at Jesus' reply, his countercharge. Jesus replied, verse 3, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. So to demonstrate that they had placed their emphasis too highly on their own oral traditions, Jesus gives them an example of how they had even a tradition that helped them violate a commandment of God. See, the fifth commandment, God commanded his people to honor your father and your mother. It's the first commandment with a... um, uh, regarding the relationship uh, to the man's, a man's relationship to man. And elsewhere in God's law, 
It was even the death penalty described for breaking that commandment if you cursed your father and mother. But the tradition of the elders permitted them to say, well, what I would otherwise use to honor my parents is now devoted to God. And whether or not he brought it to the temple or didn't bring it to the temple, that didn't matter. He could just say, well, that is devoted to God now. And then he was no longer obligated then to use his possessions then to honor his mother and his father. And in so doing, Jesus says the Pharisees and scribes were hypocrites in their obedience to God. Hypocrite essentially means a pretender, pretending to be holy, pretending to be righteous, and yet on the inside they weren't. It's just like when the Pharisees were pretending to ask Jesus a question about taxes. What they were really doing was trying to trap him and say something which could get him in trouble with Caesar. But Isaiah spoke about God's people generations prior that they honor God with their lips and not their hearts. They vainly worship God because their doctrines are but inventions of men. And I believe a lesson that we can learn out of this is to be careful that we don't elevate our man-made rules above God's commandments. I mean, to their credit, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes were trying to apply God's laws by relating them to daily life. All of God's commandments aren't as specific as every situation possible in the life of an Israelite. And so what the Pharisees and the scribes would do was would attempt to draw the boundaries and clarify then what was lawful and unlawful. But when those man-made boundaries also then prohibit God's other commands, now they've gone too far. How people observe the Sabbath or the, the rest day can also prevent someone from rescuing an animal. And Jesus had to remind them the animal's life was more important. Or it could even prevent a doctor from tending to the sick. And that wasn't right either. And sometimes our man-made boundaries in Christianity also forbid people to engage in certain activities on a Sunday. Yes, God commanded his people to observe a rest day. I hope you enjoy a rest day once a week. But forms of rest can vary among different people. So what, it, isn't our, it is not our place to then prohibit certain activities to deny people the rest that they would like to observe. I got this story um, from a book on illustrations, and you can ask our Dutch friends if the story could even be true, but it was a story about a young Dutch pastor who was confronted by a serious situation one Sunday morning. Here's what happened. It was winter, and a severe storm had happened in the night, and his church was located some distance outside the village. So there was no way for this young pastor, it seemed, to get to the church for Sunday worship until he had an idea. He could get to church if he put on his ice skates and used the canals to get to church that Sunday. Well, he thought about it. Skating was simply not to be done on the Sabbath, so he'd be taking a risk, and he decided he would take the risk. So he put on his skates, he made his way without difficulty to the church, and just inside the door, the official board was waiting for him. No one was smiling, but they were in a quandary. What should they do? They liked their pastor, but he had just violated one of the Sabbath rules. Well, after long discussion, one of them asked the pastor a question. Did you enjoy the skating, he asked. No, the pastor said, I didn't enjoy it. A sigh of relief. They thought, okay, well, then everything is all right. Since there had been no joy, then it was acceptable to the people. I don't know, is it a true story? Can it be true in the Netherlands? Ask our Dutch friends.
But imagine an extreme situation like that, beginning to judge others for the way that they practice the rest day and drawing the lines where, in fact, the Scripture doesn't draw the lines. Let us be careful not to pretend our piety by observing man-made rules while we neglect the more important things. The Pharisees and the scribes, they were tithing of their mint and their spices. That wasn't wrong, but Jesus said, but the thing is, you've forgotten all about justice and mercy and faithfulness. So as we observe God's commandments, we have to remember it comes from a desire to please and honor God, not out of a desire so that we can boast in our holiness and our piety. We were created not to be autonomous. That is, we were created to follow God's laws, theonomous, and we're bound to the laws of our Maker. But that shouldn't be understood as a burden because God's laws were not created to be burdensome. In fact, the duty and the delight coincide when we are in a love relationship with our Lord. Our greatest example of this is Jesus Christ and His obedience to the Father. That when we obey the, the Lord, it brings us the highest happiness and pleasure. See, the sin in us causes us to begrudge God's laws, to see them as restrictive. But once we're born again in Christ and our hearts are renewed, then we begin to love God's law and we delight in His truth. And the same way for our worship. It shouldn't be begrudgingly or as a burden. We come to serve, not to be served. We sing from an overflow of gratitude and praise. We give in recognition that God has blessed us so abundantly. We listen to God's word because we desire to hear what God has to say to us. And we testify out of an experience of what God has done in His grace and His faithfulness. And here comes this great paradigm shift. Verse 10, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter then said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull, Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach, then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slanders. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. You see how they had to think completely differently than they had understood before. They had all these laws and rules that if you didn't wash a certain way, if you ate certain things, then your body is suddenly defiled. But Jesus is explaining that what you take into your body leaves again. That's not what makes you unholy. It's the things that proceed from the mouth because those things have come from the heart. And when your heart is filled with evil thoughts and murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander, these are what make you defiled. So for us to be made pure, it's our hearts that have to be regenerated from their depravity to God's purity. See, it's the sin in our hearts, the evil desires that Satan uses then to tempt us into doing evil. We were created by God in His image. We were created to be obedient to Him and to be governed by His Spirit. But when Adam and Eve chose to sin against God, they plunged the entire human race into sin. 
and the scriptures are clear that there is no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. Friends, that is the state of the human race today, that all have turned away. And the image of God is marred because our hearts have become depraved. Jeremiah says it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So when you and I would sin, it's because we already have an evil desire in our heart. Each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. James 1, verse 14. So Satan just has to present us with an opportunity, and then we'll be tempted to fall for that opportunity. See, the prevailing assumption made by most today, the general thinking of the public today, is that we're born good and pure and right. And then we're taught to do evil. But the scriptures are clear that because of sin, we're born already with this predisposition to do evil until Christ enters our hearts, until he regenerates us and causes us to be born again. And Jesus says that unless a man is born again, he will never see the kingdom of God. So our salvation is being regenerated in our hearts that now creates in us the desire for God's purity. And for us to become good, we have to be changed from the inside out so that when we have our identity in Christ and Christ's spirit in us, then we will desire the things that are eternal and not temporary. And then it'll affect whether or not we're going to pursue the worldly material things. Then it changes how greedy we are. When our identity is in Christ and Christ's spirit is in us, then we'll desire that which is pure and righteous. And that will then influence how we behave regarding sexual immorality or sexual purity. And with our identity in Christ and Christ's spirit in us, we will be filled with gratitude because we understand the grace of God for the first time. And that gratitude then will affect how much we envy others when we know how much we have received and what awaits for us in heaven one day. So friends, Jesus' teaching requires us to make a paradigm shift. It is not what enters into the body that defiles us, but what comes out of the heart that defiles us. Now let's be careful not to make changes in our mental model when Jesus never did. Okay, so people will sometimes say that, well, Jesus brought new teaching, so, uh, and then they'll make the Bible say something it doesn't. For example, that Jesus redefines marriage. No, he didn't redefine marriage. It is still a lifelong covenant union between one man and one woman. And when God was, or when Jesus was asked about divorce or when he was teaching about adultery, he referred back to the creation when God created man and woman and the union was considered by God to be one flesh. Jesus did not condone or encourage or permit homosexual or premarital sexual behavior. Jesus still calls adultery adultery and fornication fornication. And he still calls them here in this verse as evils within a man's heart. And the definition did not change when Jesus was using the word from what they understood in his time of the Old Testament standards. So that's clear that, that did, that's not one of those paradigm shifts that, that many would be claiming have to be taken today. But what we could apply a paradigm shift to is, for example, when Jews and Gentiles form one family of God. That was completely foreign in the minds of the disciples at that time because the, the Jews were God's people, and it was difficult for the apostles to understand that now God was bringing Jews and Gentiles together into one family. That's a paradigm shift. Another paradigm shift is that it's better to give than to receive. I'm sure you 
would agree with me, it certainly makes us happy when we receive something from others, right? It brings delight if someone has bought us something. They've given us a gift. It is good to receive, isn't it? We love the birthday presents, the Christmas presents. We enjoy the free meal. Who doesn't like a tax refund or a work bonus? Well, that tends to instill in us then that there's going to always be this desire to be on the receiving end of things. But the Lord says and taught, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That requires us a complete change in our thinking. As much as the pleasure as I derive from receiving something, the Bible tells me that I'll receive even more pleasure from giving something. Or losing your life to find it. We're immersed in a culture where everyone's trying to find their life. We elevate the right to pursue happiness as one of the highest personal rights for anyone. We look out for us, number one. We, take, we make our choices based on what's going to make me happy. Uh, but then the scriptures teach us that it's self-sacrifice that is a real pleasure and it, it, that brings a real happiness. Jesus says that it's those who want to save their lives will lose it. And, you will gain, and what does it mean to gain the whole world and yet lose your own soul? So only those who will lose their life for Christ's sake will find it. And that, friends, is also a great paradigm shift. I want to close with just one more, because maybe some of us here still need this major paradigm shift, this idea that only righteous deeds will get you into heaven, that only by being good enough, then God will let you into heaven. Because that's the, the, the general understanding for most people, that maybe they'll weigh out their, our good deeds with our bad deeds, and hopefully our good deeds weigh more than our bad deeds, and then God will say, yes, you're good enough for heaven. But the scripture is clear. Jesus had to give his life as a ransom for many because there is no one righteous, no, not even one. Jesus took God's wrath for sin by becoming the sacrifice necessary because the wages of our sin is death. God is still a holy God. Justice must be served and our sins and our evil deeds must be punished. And we are unable to be completely righteous if the law of God is held up against us but again, it's Jesus' righteousness that comes from God apart from the law that has been made known. And this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So some of us here today are here because we have already had that paradigm shift. We've already understood that salvation is by grace through faith. But maybe you're here and you haven't had that paradigm shift. That's the most important one yet. Maybe you need to receive your righteousness through faith since you've been working so hard at receiving it through your actions. Or maybe you're here today, you've already received your salvation by faith, but maybe you need to simply lose your life to Christ in order to find your life and truly surrender everything of yours to Him. Or maybe you need to rid yourself of this selfish pursuit of getting and receiving and begin experiencing the blessing and joy of being generous to others. Or maybe you're here today and you need to stop trying to change your outward behavior and begin to experience the real transformation of Christ in you and his Holy Spirit in his power. So ask yourself to the evil that I speak sometimes, what does that reflect of the condition of my heart? Does it still need to change? Or the evil that I, that, that, um, that I sometimes do, instead of just trying to avoid that evil, maybe I should be pursuing things like generosity and kindness and goodness and gentleness. 
See, what Jesus makes very clear is that the only way you can change your life for the better is, first of all, to be saved in Christ and then to continue in the grace of God at work in your life because you have to change from the inside and out. Too much today is the emphasis is all on the outward appearances, isn't it? We worry about our weight, we worry about our looks, our shape, our dress, and we don't work so hard on what's on the inside. When we were raising our kids, we always try to remind them where handsome really is. So we would get them ready for school or get them ready for church. We had in our closet a comb and a little spray bottle with water in it, and as they uh, were getting ready, we'd spray their hair with a little bit of water and comb their hair neatly. And of course, we'd look at them and say, wow, you are so handsome. And our boys are handsome. They have their mother's looks. And we'd say, you are so handsome. But then we'd ask them again, now where is handsome? Eventually they realized handsome is here, right? So we would point, now it's not on their chest, no, but it is on the inside. Because we wanted to remind them as handsome as they look on the outside, that's not what matters to God. And that's not what should make you attractive to people. As we see what Jesus is saying here is that evil comes from the heart. But once you're transformed by Christ, then good also comes from the heart. And that comes from a transformed heart that Jesus has made new. And that's what it means to be born again. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and your truth. We thank you that Jesus, in many ways, would blow the minds of those of his listeners. Lord, maybe we've heard this before, and so we've already had the paradigm shift. And I thank you and I praise you that we've heard this truth. But Lord, maybe there's some here today that the teachings of Jesus conflicts and goes drastically against what they've been taught before. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would convict each of our hearts, reveal to us what it is that we must change, and we pray also, Lord God, that you would do the changing in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, since you have enabled us by sending it to us for us to receive. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.